be here with you all this morning. Um, man, yeah, I love being here every every Sunday morning with everybody. Um, man, one of the things I love about our church uh, is like the cultural diversity. You know, you look around the room and there's people from different nations. Like the odds are within a few rows of you, there's someone who grew up in a different place maybe speaking a different language from you. And I love that about Bluemont. I love that about our church. And I love that, you know, the different nations express different things about the character of God to us in different ways. And, um, you know, types of music, cultural expressions, dances, clothing, their approach to life, and all that stuff. Um, Brogan and I were recently in Mexico, actually, and uh, for a wedding. And it wasn't one of those, like, exotic Cancun weddings. It was like in the middle of the desert, like we were the only non-Spanish speaking people in the wedding. And uh, it was really fun just hanging out with, with the guys that, that we were there with and, and just seeing the way that they live life, the way they approach life is so different than just the way we do here. Like the culture in, in Mexico and much of Latin America emphasizes community and being together much more than, than it does here. You know, And we have that obviously, but, but not to that degree. Um, the other thing I was thinking about too is was like music, you know, like uh, music up here. Um, it's interesting. I was thinking about this, and uh, a few of us were talking about this recently. That like most of the music we hear today is like there's only really twelve notes. Like in an octave, there's twelve notes. Like on any of these guitars, there's only twelve notes, and they're all repeated. And so, pretty much any music you ever listen to, like on the radio, anything, is just these twelve notes rearranged in different orders. Isn't that crazy? There's like millions and millions of songs that all sound so different that only use these 12 notes in different ways. Isn't that insane? That just blows your mind. And they're just discovering new ways of ordering and putting new rhythms to these same 12 notes that we've always had. And then, that's Western music. And then in the other side of the world, like in India, they divide one octave instead of into 12 notes into infinite notes. (laughs) And so to our ear, you, you know, you watch like Indiana Jones or some movie where they have like Indian music in the background, and it doesn't really make sense to our ears. It sounds like, ah, oh, it's like out of tune or something, but it's the way that they're expressing themselves on purpose. You know, it's not out of tune to them, but to me, it's like, ah, oh, that, doesn't, that doesn't make sense. I can't understand what's going on with that. Um, but I, so I love that there are different expressions. But then on the other side, there's gaping problems, right, that each of us face in, in our different cultures. Uh, for instance, when Brogan and I went to Mexico, people were telling us to avoid certain cities on our way there. They were telling us to avoid posting certain things online because of dangerous people that might try and take advantage of us. Many of you guys have probably heard of the cartel in Mexico, right, that uh, has a lot of um, bad influence over the government, over uh, law enforcement, and uh, many people act- live in fear of the cartel, of stealing from them, uh, even killing them, and that the law enforcement, there's no hope that they're going to do anything about it, you know? And uh, living with a lot of these guys from Mexico that I lived with, there's a lot of stories like, yeah, my, I, my friends uh, got kidnapped, or, you know, things like that. It's just crazy. They're like, we don't deal with that here, you know? And there's just a the feeling that you can't trust the ones who are supposed to protect you, you know? And then another Latin American country, three days ago in Venezuela, there were riots. Um, hundreds of thousands of people... Um, in Caracas, the, the capital city of Venezuela, uh, rioting, asking the president to step down because of food shortages, huge economic problems. And just the pervading feeling again was that, man, we can't trust the ones that are there to protect us. 
right? We just can't trust them. And there's this fear of the future of, man, what's, what does the future hold for our nation? And I think sometimes we're starting to get that feeling here in the U.S., right, with uh, the elections coming up and a lot of people frustrated and feeling like, I don't feel like there's any hope <laughs> for the future with uh, these candidates that I've been presented with or, uh, you know, you have different things of corruption that have come up where, hey, if you're a certain color or a certain economic status, the law maybe doesn't apply as harshly to you, right? And a lot of people are frustrated, like, man, can we even trust the people there that are supposed to protect us? I mean, even the guy walking free recently. Um, but regardless of the nation that you're from, there's a lot of things that we can live in fear of, right? You have ISIS that's always on the news, blowing things up or destroying things, right? And I actually, this, is, this blows my mind, but I, I was a well-meaning woman, I think. But, you know, there's so many things, like, on the news to be afraid of and so many events that, that you can just live in fear of all the time. Um, but I had this lady tell me that um, she told me to avoid all Middle Eastern students at K-State and that, like, you, I know that you think they're trying to be your friends, but they're actually spies for ISIS, and I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe someone actually believes that. Like, that is insane. And told me that, hey, some of them probably want to kill you. I was like, whoa, like, what? Like, that is not real. Like, I can, please, let me tell you. And, and it got us in this huge discussion. But people live in fear, right? Because of a lot of different things. But today, we want to talk about, man, what does the Bible say about the future of our nation? And what does the rest, what does God say about the rest of the nations of the world? You know, is there hope for them? Is there a future for them? What does God say about the future of the nations? We actually have a, a picture. I don't know, Rob, if you will. Is there hope? <laughs> uh, that's uh, Pastor Hope. Someone, someone found that picture online and wrote hope under it, printed it off and put it on our office door. <laughs> So, hope, 2016. There's, there's hope. So anyway, uh, if you have your Bibles, open them up to Genesis 12. We're talking about today, man, is God enough for your nation? There's a lot of different nations represented in this room, and I love that. Is God enough for your nation? From the very beginning, God's made it pretty clear that He cares about nations, He's not just after individual salvation. It's kind of like we've made it about, you know, here in the West. It's like, hey, God has a personal plan for your life. Your life, like, God wants to make you successful. And that's, that's true. God has a plan for your life. But He's not just about individuals um, being saved or, or coming into relationship with Him. He wants entire family, groups, ethnicities, uh, nations, right? And communities. So Genesis 12, 1 through 3, this is... After sin enters the world, God says, okay, I'm going to initiate this plan to redeem all of creation. And He does it through this one guy. So Genesis 12, 1-3, says, The Lord said to Abram, who later becomes Abraham, Leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous And you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. And you think families, think nations. All the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. Only a few chapters later in Genesis 18, God re-emphasizes the same promise 
to Abraham, but also to the nations. In uh, Genesis 18, 18, it says, Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. So God's, God's heart is not just after individuals, but after entire nations, entire people groups, right? And, and there's a great mystery in this, that, that there's some stories in the New Testament where it says one guy you know, gives his life to Christ and his whole, his whole household uh, was saved that day. There's mystery in how that works because there is the emphasis of, okay, yeah, you personally need to make Jesus your Lord and Savior, but he's also not after just you. He wants your entire sphere of influence around you, right? Which is awesome. There's a verse that's used all the time, Jeremiah 29, 11. Um, does anyone know Jeremiah 29, 11? Yeah, it's probably, you see it on coffee mugs all the time, uh, bumper stickers, magnets, right? Uh, it says, For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. It's like, yes, I love that. It's so good. I want to drink my coffee to that verse, right? And, and a lot of times we use that verse to encourage someone who's maybe having a hard time trusting God or maybe has a difficult decision that they're facing, right? Or maybe they didn't get the job they wanted. And they're like, hey, it's okay. God has great plans for your life. And that's true. But it's interesting that if you read the whole chapter, this is to a nation. It's not to one person. It's not to Jeremiah. This is Jeremiah speaking to the entire nation of Israel that was living in exile in their enemies' lands. Like they were not living in their home country that God had made for them, but they were living in exile. And God was saying, hey, take heart. I have a plan for you as a nation, right? Not just you individuals, but as a nation, I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to bring you back uh, to the original plan that I have for you. So God's heart is for the nations, all nations, and people groups of the earth. It's funny because... Um, you look at Abraham, that promise that God said to Abraham, and the initial part is that he was going to bless Abraham. He's like, hey, man, I'm going to make you into a mighty nation. And you're like, oh, man, that's awesome. Like, God, can you tell me that? Like, I want to be made into a mighty nation, you know, or, or something. And then he says, I'm going to make you famous. Like, yes, God, I receive that. Make me famous. <laughs> you know, make me into a mighty nation. But the long-term goal wasn't just for Abraham to be famous or Abraham to be made into this mighty nation, right? It was for uh, all nations of the world, every nation to be blessed through what he's doing in Abraham, right? So he wasn't like just, hey, I'm just going to bless you and your family and your friends. But no, I'm going to do something to such a degree that every people group, every ethnicity is affected in the world, right? Everyone on the planet is going to be affected by what I'm going to do through you. So it wasn't just about Abraham. It was about Abraham being used as a catalyst for the nations to be reached. He even says... Uh, in the New Testament, that the end of the world, the return of Christ, won't come until every people group on earth has a chance to respond to the gospel. Matthew twenty four fourteen says, and this is Jesus talking, he says, and the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so that all nations will hear it, and then the end will come. All right? So it's not just about us, it's not just about a bunch of individuals, a lot of individuals coming, but it's every people group must have a, a chance. So why is this? Why, why does God care about nations and people groups, uh, you know, cultures and things like that? I think part of it is that people are made in the image of God, right? In Genesis it says, I'll make man in my image, I'll make women in my image. And think about who God is. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, God exists in community, right? You have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit 
living in perfect unity, in perfect community with one another, loving and surrender and submission to one another, right? And there's no, um, there's no like abuse of power in that, in that community. There's no like, hey, you submit to me, do what I say or else. It's, man, I love you. I'm going to surrender my, my authority to you. And they're all doing it to one another in this really beautiful picture of what community looks like. And so to be made in the image of God means to fully express the image of God means to live in community with other image bearers of God, right? And you think about what, is, what makes a nation, like what makes one nation different from another nation, like what makes us different from Canada, right? Is, is, it's not just this land or this boundary around this geographical area that we live in. That's not what makes us a nation, right? Although that helps to have somewhere to live. It's not just a bunch of people that kind of live in the same area, right? What is it that makes a nation? A nation is a bunch of people who bear the image of God coming together to such a degree that culture is produced, that, that a way of seeing the world is produced out of their relationships. See, I can't make an, a culture or nation by myself. I need relationships with other people. I need community to make culture. It's an expression of our community identity, right? And I love this quote. Uh, this guy named Andy Crouch, Andy Crouch wrote this really cool book called Culture Making. And he says that culture is what we make of the world. Culture is, first of all, the name for our relentless, restless human effort to take the world as it's given to us and make something else. And there's two senses that he goes on to explain what, the, what he means by that. First is the obvious sense that you're taking the raw materials on the planet and you're making something like paintings and buildings and you know everything that we see here is culture in the sense that it's made from some raw material that we've already found somewhere on the planet, right? But then in the other sense, it's what you, culture is what you make of the world. Like it's the sense that you make of the world. It's like when you see a movie, you ask your friend, hey, what'd you make of that? You're not asking your friend to make another movie, right? You're asking them, like, did you make sense of that? Like, what did you think about what that meant, right? And so that's a cultural expression that, okay, what did you make of that? Like, we take something that we see and we make something of it. We make sense of it, right? And I love, that's, that's culture. God cares about that because God has made us to produce things. In His image, we live in community and we produce things. Does that make sense? So I love that. And then, the other reason is that brokenness and sin are not just an individual problem. They're an international epidemic. Sin is an international problem, and it affects entire nations. Every nation of the world has a sin problem, right? Our nation, the nations around us, all have a, a brokenness problem, and it pervades everything we do, affecting the way that we make culture, affecting the way that, that we express what it means to be made in the image of God, right? Sin taints all of that. But God has a long-term vision for us as well. So He cares about the nation, but then He also has a long-term vision for the nations. Uh, You guys can turn to uh, Revelation 21, the very last book of the Bible. 21, the second-to-last chapter in the entire Bible. So you don't even need your your uh, table of contents. Just the second to last chapter in the book. I love that God's long-term vision, His long-term picture of what the nations are going to look like is not just to get rid of boundaries. It's not just to get rid of all the differences. 
So I think sometimes, like, I remember I came to college, and I was following Christ already, and I had a lot of weird ideas about, like, what God wanted to do. And I saw, like, you know, all the different churches and campus ministries on my campus, and I'm like, this isn't okay. Like, real unity means there needs to be one church and one campus ministry, like, everyone coming together and just being the same. And that's not really what the Bible talks about, like being real. That's not God's heart. God loves the differences because he created us to express his character and and his creativity, right? And if we're all the same, how does that express the fullness of God? It doesn't. It expressed maybe one vanilla part of of God, (laughs) right? Um, So God's, God's purpose is not to get rid of boundary or get rid of nations. And it's also not to get rid of the physical realm, skin and bones and colors and ethnicities and hair color. And it's not to get rid of that. It's not that our souls are the only thing that go to the afterlife. His goal is to remake everything, the heavens and the earth, that there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. And so that's what we're about to read. His plan is to make all things new. So here we go in Revelation 21, verses 1 through 3. And uh, this is uh, the Apostle John who was a disciple of Jesus. Um, he got exiled uh, when, as the church was expanding through Rome. They captured him and they exiled him on this island, and he has this vision, and that's what the book of Revelation is. So this is John speaking of this vision that he has. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city the new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among His people. He will live with them and they will be His people. God Himself will be with them. And then jump down to verse 22. He goes on to describe what the city looks like. And he says, I saw no temple in the city. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb, talking about Jesus, are its temple. And the city has no need for sun or moon. For the glory of God illuminates the city, and the Lamb is its light. The nations, here we go, the nations, they're still there, will walk in its light, and the kings of the world will enter the city in all their glory. Its gates will never be closed at the end of the day, because there's no night. And all the nations, again, the nations, will bring their glory and honor into the city, Nothing evil will be allowed to enter, nor anyone who practices shameful idolatry or dishonesty, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Okay, so here we just looked at the two bookends of history. At first, God's promise, hey, I'm going to do something, I'm going to bless the nations, and then this other, at the very end, okay, this is what it's going to look like, right? And there's a new heavens, there's a new earth, and they're brought together as one. So here we live on the earth, and heaven is some place that we can't see, right? You die, you you go to heaven, but those places will become one place, and God will physically dwell among His people. There's not going to be any sorrow. Every tear will be wiped away, and look at that. Amongst the perfection of this new creation are the nations, right? This is awesome. It says, the nations will walk in the light of God, and all the nations will bring their glory and honor into the city. It goes on later to actually describe what the glory and honor of the nations are, and it's really interesting. It's really thought-provoking if you read it, because it basically, it just describes all these cultural goods. Like it talks about the camels of the certain nation, these merchants. It talks about the ships of the, this other nation. These non-Israelite, the Israelites were like the people of God, right? 
And so you think that these cultural goods are going to be the Christian artifacts, right? Like you go down to the Christian bookstore and you see doves everywhere and, you know, pictures of little children in robes and little wings and, you know, like awkward naked babies and it's going to be really weird, you know? Like that's not, he's, that's not what he describes. He describes these non-Christian artifacts like these ships of this nation and the camels of this other nation and, you know, this and this and all these things. But the, thing, the glory of these nations are the greatest and most distinctive cultural achievements of these nations. And those will be presented in the city that is in this new creation. Isn't, that is so interesting. That just blows my mind to think about that. Because I grew up thinking, okay, when I die, my body goes in the ground, and then some invisible part of me goes and floats up into the sky, and you know, we will sit on clouds playing harps forever with pastel-colored robes, you know? Because that's just what they wear up there, I guess, pastel-colored robes. Um, like those, uh, the frat shorts. They're all pastel-colored. And they, they must be seeing something about heaven that I'm missing as they got the pastel going on. Um, but that's not what happens. That's not the way this describes it. Nowhere do you see people, just these ghosts, floating on clouds playing harps and singing forever, you know? Like this eternal worship service where you're forced to sing things all the time, right? Is you, see, you see actual people making actual things in a similar but better way than we do now, right? Except all sin and brokenness are wiped away. Every tear is wiped away. There's no sorrow. Right? I love that, that even in the new heavens and the new earth, there's still nations. So here we have these two bookends. We have the promise, and then we have the fulfillment of the promise. And here we are, stuck in between wondering, okay, how do we get there? Like, what does that look like for us? And a lot of people have described it with the phrase, we're in the here and not yet. That Jesus came and he inaugurated his kingdom. That Jesus did miracles. And he said, hey, the kingdom is here. It's among you. Repent and believe, for it is here. People were being healed all over the place. He was doing miracles. He'd multiply food. He would introduce the character of God in this new way that people were, their minds were blown. So, man, I can't believe that God is like that. He said, the meek will inherit the earth. The, uh, he like flipped the, the value system upside down that they had. Because they thought, man, if you're rich, that means you're blessed by God. He said, no, the poor are blessed. Right? And, and these people are like, what the? Like, this doesn't make sense. And he, he inaugurated this reality that the kingdom of God was coming and was going to expand and bless and change and redeem everything, every aspect of the world. Right? So that started. And so it's here. But it's not yet, because it's not yet fulfilled, right? We're, we don't, we're not living in that city where every tear is wiped away yet, but we have some glimpse of what that's going to look like, right? So we're in this here and not yet. And so, so what does that look like? Well, we can look at Isaiah, at what God's plan is for this. Isaiah 42, 1-4 through 4, is a prophecy of what the Messiah is going to do. And it's actually quoted again in the New Testament uh, in Matthew 12, 18-21 talking about Jesus, and I love this, He's, he says, here is my servant, talking about Jesus, he is the Messiah, coming to inaugurate the kingdom of God, excuse me, here is my servant, whom I have chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight, I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations, he will not quarrel, or cry out, no one will hear his voice in the streets, 
A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out, until he has brought justice through to victory. In his name, the nations will put their hope. So in his name, the nations will put their hope. So that's his plan, is in the name of Christ, in the name of Jesus, we have hope. And it's not just me as an individual. I, I, it's not just that I have hope for personal salvation. I can go to heaven and you know, sit on my own personal cloud someday with my hand made by angel's harp. Um, but no, God is redeeming the nations and His plan is through Christ. So I have a few, a few things for us that we need to constantly remind ourselves because we must stay vigilant to the gospel that Jesus alone is the hope of the nations. And God wants to bring us into that. But there are certain things that I think we need to keep guard of. The first is that mankind, man, is still not the answer. Man is not the ultimate answer. So think about our situation here in the U.S. I know that there are a lot of people from, from different nations here who maybe aren't going to vote uh, in, in this election. But think about maybe your own nation and elections and your... your your hope to elect the right person for the right job, right? But electing the right person isn't going to solve all our problems, right? Think about like what you see on Facebook and you know the, the rants that people have, the, the memes that people post from their different political parties. I, th- I think sometimes people think, man, if we could just somehow convert everyone in the nation to my political party then the heavens will open and the hearts of the people will turn to the Lord and every tear will be wiped away, right? And if we could somehow elect all Republicans in the Senate and a Republican president or, you know, Democrats or whatever, that the hearts of people will turn to God, right? And all our problems will go away. And that's, that's not true. We're not electing the Messiah. We already have one of those. We don't need another one. Like, whoever this next president is not going to solve all our problems. And I think... And I'm guilty of this, but many of us need to repent of putting all our hopes and dreams on the next elected official for elevating this person to a place that really only God can take. Right? I know I, I've done that. Like, oh man, like, I feel hopeless. Like, man, if this person is elected, we're doomed. And if this person is elected, we're doomed. And it doesn't seem like there's any other options. Like, what do we do? Which leads us to the next point that God is still in control even if your candidate isn't elected. God is still in control. Even if, think, think, like, think crazy with me here. Even, say 200 years from now, Canada takes over the U.S. And there is no America anymore. Like, there's no such thing as like, being American. Even in that situation, God is still in control. God is still sovereign over the nations. And is still accomplishing His purposes in the nations, even if it looks different than maybe the way I hope it looks. Right? There was a movie that came out a few years ago uh, called Prometheus. Has anyone seen that movie? It's like a follow-up to the Aliens movie, like Aliens 1, Aliens 2, Aliens 7, um, where people, people became obsessed with discovering aliens in the universe, which is cool. I, like, I mean, it would be kind of cool if we found out you know, there's aliens or whatever. But Christians all over the world were freaking out because they thought... If aliens were discovered living in some far-off place, or, you know, the dark side of the moon or something, then that somehow meant that God doesn't exist. And it's like, wait, how? I don't get how those are linked. Uh, but there's somehow this idea that, oh man, if, they just, if this advance is made in science, or this discovery of, of this thing 
then somehow that invalidates everything that God said in the Bible. Well, that's not true. If aliens are discovered, God is still in control. God is still sovereign. God created them too, right? And I'm not saying they're there. I, <laughs> I don't know. Um, <laughs> but even if they were, God is in control, right? And I, I remember when that movie came out, everyone was freaking out like, oh my gosh, like, I hope they don't find anything because then that means God isn't real. Like, what? Why does that mean God isn't real? Like, who? I mean, if they find anything, great. But if they don't, it's that God is still real and still among us and still working and is still accomplishing His purposes on the earth and in the universe, right? Among them, them too, if they're there, <laughs> right? Now, does that mean that we need, we should relinquish all involvement and engagement in changing and fighting for what's right and what's what's just? No. We should still be responsible. God calls us to be responsible. It's interesting, there's a guy named William Wilberforce. He has this really cool quote, A private faith that does not act in the face of oppression is no faith at all. And so really, this idea that, hey, God is in control no matter what, should push us to be more active and more engaged in the culture and in what God wants to accomplish in the world. William Wilberforce, when he, he was like one of the most reluctant converts in the nation, like he did not want to come to Christ because he hated Christians, because he thought they were all hypocrites and stuff. But when he had this revelation that Christ is real and Christ really died and, and rose from the dead for me, he knew that that had real consequences for a lot, his life. And he knew that he had to act in a certain way. He saw the injustice of slavery in Great Britain. And this was a hundred years or so before uh, slavery, ending slavery, was ever really a discussion in the U.S. Um, he fought for years, like decades, uh, in his government, in parliament, to end slavery, and ended up, before he died, ending slavery, made it illegal. But it was this huge cultural backlash that he had to come against. And it was because of this understanding that God is in control, and God sees these people as made in the image of God, and that's not okay to treat them like that. And his faith led him to be active. And so we live in this tension between fighting for what's right, fighting for justice, and trusting God. We live somewhere here in the middle in these two tensions. Does that make sense? So God is still in control. The third thing is that the kingdom is still rapidly expanding. As a side note, I think many American Christians, uh, and I've been guilty of this, uh, believe that the kingdom of God is in decline because they're focused on America as if it were the center of the universe. Sort of like the church used to believe the, the earth was the center of the universe and everything revolved around the, the earth. And then they found out, wait, actually everything revolves around the sun and we're not the center of everything. I think um, Christians here in the U.S. have tended to make that true about American Christianity, that everything revolves around us, when that's really not true at all. Um, it's like that promise that God gave to Abraham in Genesis. It's like we think God was like, I will make you into a great nation and you will call it America. <laughs> and you will have guns. <laughs> and McDonald's. <laughs> right? And, and it's like, that's not real. That's not, we're not the center of God's plan for the nations. Right? I hope that we're part of it. I hope that God's doing things, and I think He is. But just because it doesn't look a certain way here doesn't mean that God isn't doing anything in the world. Right? Look at this, look at this uh, graphic I have up here. This is a... Uh, this is found in like, in like a research journal, um, and I don't know which one, but it's like legitimate research, all right? I didn't just make this. 
uh, and I can, I can give you my source later if you want. But this is the trajectory of the statistical center of global Christianity. So if you added up all the Christians in the world uh, for like a certain period of time, this is kind of the center of that grouping. Does that make sense? Okay, so you look at it. All the way on the right, 33 AD, when Jesus died and rose from the dead, Christianity started and bloomed. So Jerusalem was the center because it was kind of all, it was the only place it was. Then Christianity expands. It starts moving up into Europe. You see all the way up until 1900, the center of Christianity is kind of in the area. And it doesn't mean that it was only in the area. It's just if you add up everyone in the world, that was kind of the middle. And so then it moves kind of, you know, Christianity expands to, to the U.S., and that kind of becomes one of, one of the epicenters. So it moves really far to the left. But then, in the last hundred years, look, 1900 is up in Spain. That's Spain, right? Okay, yeah, Spain. In the last hundred years, it's dropped super far south. Like the northern hemisphere is no longer the center of modern Christianity. It's interesting, listening to this quote uh, from Movements That Changed the World. Philip Jenkins, who's a historian, records how since the beginning of the 20th century, and you can see this on this graphic, since the beginning of the 20th century, the center of gravity in the Christian world has shifted southward toward Africa, Asia, and Latin America. These are the regions in which the largest and fastest growing Christian communities on the planet are found. They are also the regions of fastest population growth. If these trends continue, by 2050, only about 20% of the world's 3 billion Christians will be non-Hispanic whites, like what we think of as European Western Christianity, right? Only 20%. That's, that's way different than, I think, the way I've seen it, right? Only 20%. While the Northern Hemisphere Christianity is in decline, a new era of Southern Christianity has dawned. And then he goes on uh, later, specifically talking about what's happening in Africa, if current trends continue by 2025, only nine years from now, there could be 633 million Christians in Africa, making it the second largest Christian continent after South America. Now, isn't that interesting? So I think we tend to focus on America. And if, if, if you don't, then I don't want to group you in with, with me. <laughs> but we tend to make it all about us and what God's doing here. And we miss out on all the amazing things that God is doing in, in all over the world. I have a friend, a, a really good friend of mine, named David Killo and his wife Fiona, who work in Angola, which is actually the most difficult nation to gain entry into. Like, I've done several searches, and se- several guys have traveled to every nation in the world, and they all say Angola is the most difficult nation to get into in the, in the world, um, just with the way that their government operates. And they, they spent the last two years learning Portuguese, which is what they speak there, in Portugal, and spending two years getting their visas to move to Angola. Two years just to get into the nation. And now they're in, like, kind of what, the outback, like the out in the boonies among these unreached tribes, learning the language. They have learned Portuguese, and then they have a translator who speaks Portuguese and whatever the tribal language is. And so they translate from English to Portuguese to whatever that language is to share the gospel. And just this last week... Uh, he was sharing that they were with this tribe, and they had promised, you know, just to bring them food, they're going to make a meal and spend time together. And so they show up, and they start making the food, and this lady comes up like, hey, 
thank you for the food, but when are you going to teach us the Word of God? Like, we came here to learn the Word of God. We didn't come here for your food. And it was like, oh my gosh. And so he was just blown away. He's like, oh, yeah, yes, thank you, yes. Let's, what, yeah. And so he, like, reached around to, like, look around to, like, find the guy who was kind of planning to, like, lead the discussion for that night. And he felt like the Holy Spirit was like, no, you teach them right now. She's asking for it right now. And so he's okay, like, what can I use? And they were going to cook a goat that night for the meal. And so he, he's like, okay, like, which is easier to kill, a goat or a lamb? And he just talked about that. And, like, Jesus is the lamb of the world. Of, of, of the world, And that he was slain before the foundation of the earth for your sin. Right? And he just went into it. And they're like, yes, like, this is what we were here for. We didn't come here for your food. We came here for the word of God. Right? And that's happening all over the world. That's one tiny story. And that happened last week in some forgotten nation that I had never heard of until my friend moved there. You know? Like, I didn't know anything about Angola. You know? But God is doing so much in the world. So we can never forget that whatever happens here, the kingdom is still rapidly expanding all over the world. And I pray to God that we get to be a part of it here and that our nation is rocked with the gospel. But even if that doesn't happen... That does not mean that the kingdom is not working elsewhere, right? So we can still put our faith anew in Christ today because God is transforming the nations. I mean, think about that tribe. That is a nation. That is a people group, this tribe. And they're hearing the word of God. This tribe is changing. Isn't that cool? So cool. So the fourth, fourth thing for us is that we still have a role in all this. We remind ourselves. The Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18-20, Jesus came and told His disciples, this is at the end of His three years of ministry. He's about to leave and put His disciples in charge of the whole ministry and movement of what He's doing in the world. He tells His disciples, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, because I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth, go and make disciples of all the nations. There's the word nations again, all the nations. He doesn't say make a bunch of individual disciples. Make disciples of the nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And there's so much in here that has been said and that we could say, um, but just the one thing I want to I want to focus on is what does he what does he tell them to teach the disciples to do to obey right to obey all the commands I've given you he doesn't tell them to adopt a certain culture right like my friend they don't bring guitars to Africa because they don't want to imprint Western Christianity that has to use a guitar and has to sing Hillsong right they want to imprint they want a, a natural cultural expression of the kingdom of God to bear fruit there. And they don't want to say, okay, yeah, if you want to be a Christian, it has to look like this. It has to, you have to gather on Sunday mornings and play guitar and, you know, sing these kinds of songs. And we can translate them into your language, but you're still singing our songs. You know, it's, no. It's like the nations can express the gospel in the cultural expression of the gospel. And yes, there are certain things in different cultures that are unhealthy and maybe even against and, and counter gospel just like there are in our culture, right? And God wants to transform those things, but they can still express the gospel in that, that cultural expression. So the thing is that we teach them to obey. 
And that, that's not just us teaching others, that's us being taught by others too. Each of us, if we want to be a disciple, we need to learn to obey all the commands of Christ. Right? It's not just, we Americans will teach the rest of the world to obey. No, we as Americans need to learn to obey Christ. And then, as God is working in us, we can take that other places. Which is interesting, that other nations are starting to send missionaries to the U.S. Isn't that interesting? It blows my mind. So our role is to follow and obey Christ. And so I, I know I don't have a, a ton of super practical things for you to follow, but really I feel like if we could get this, that, man, this would totally enhance the way that we live every day. That, man, God is doing something incredible in our midst around us. And we have an incredible opportunity to, to be a part of it. That there is hope for our nation. There is hope for your nation. Wherever it is that you're from, there is hope for your nation. And it's interesting, I just want to end with, if we can go back to uh, the Jeremiah 29:11 verse that we talked about was for the nation of Israel that was in exile. It's really interesting because if you keep reading... God says to these exiles who were like kidnapped from their nation, you know, and like they're like held in captivity. But he says, hey, I want you to be a blessing to that nation. And the condition of that nation when you leave will be the condition of your nation when you get back. Isn't that interesting? God cares so much, not just about you, not just about what you're doing, not just about me, but where are you planted? Be a blessing to that community, that family, that nation. And then God's going to export that back to wherever it is that you're going later. Isn't that cool? I love, that's, that's God's heart. I love that. Even these people that were anti-God and kidnapped the people of God, God wanted to be a blessing to them. That's crazy. So anyway, let me pray for us and believe that God wants to do something incredible in our lives this week. God, thank you so much. Lord, that you are in our midst. Lord, that your kingdom is expanding. It is here. And it's not yet fully uh, present, but God, it's here. The seeds of the kingdom are here and bearing fruit among us. God, I thank you that lives are being transformed, that our city is being transformed, our city is being influenced with the gospel, or the kingdom is going out into every area of society and the world. Lord, we thank you that you're not just at work in this nation, you're at work in, in every nation. Bearing fruit, bringing about your reality in the world today. God, we pray that you'd help us to be a greater part of what you're doing. Lord, each one of us, you're calling our name, saying, hey, come, I want you to be a part of this. So thank you for this opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen.